You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 10th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. Two of the world's less likeable regimes become friends again. The Oscars and Eurovision. Verily, we are spoiling you. And how much would you pay for another passport? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our weekly in-house daily, and the Monocle staffers who finished last in this week's office cribbage tournament are Laura Kramer and Fernando Augusto Pacheco, who will look ahead to the Oscars and Eurovision, if any listeners were wondering what hell will be like. Plus, we'll hear from Holly Dagres at the Atlantic Council about why Iran and Saudi Arabia are friends again. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right Right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I am joined today by our senior correspondent, music curator, and Eurovision desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco, and by Laura Kramer, producer and entertainment correspondent. Hello to you both. What a pleasure to be here, Andrew. Hello. Well, I, I suspect this is going to be a pleasure for two of the three of us uh, gathered, gathered here. We, we, are, we are going to be talking, are we not, about the Oscars and Eurovision. Is this some sort of cruel prank? Well, for valid reasons, I must say, you know, because Eurovision, I mean, big define, news. Define valid. I mean, the tickets were out this week. I got a ticket. I oh, mean, Andrew, the scenes. The th- it was carnage. <laughs> You're I, lucky you missed it. It I, was absolutely disgraceful w- were there scenes Fernando there were scenes great rejoicing when you can, got your can ticket can I please say the story because of I course. witnessed the whole thing okay Fernando's on a computer our our lovely Carlotta Ribello's on another we have our researchers on it and everybody's going for it and they're saying I'm in Q2000 I'm in this <laughs> Carlotta gets in her ticket somehow magically disappears. So then it's one for the final that comes up and it's like 380 pounds or something. She's like, no, that's too much. And Fernando's like, where's my credit card? Where's the... (laughs) She literally said, you have two minutes to run to my desk with your credit card. Yeah, he was pushing old ladies over like (laughs) dogs. So we didn't have those in there, but he would have. It was disgraceful. Well, we will have much more on Eurovision uh, later in the show, but first, and this is going to be one of the Friday Daily's signature seamless gear changes uh, to the Middle East, which has seen a few startling diplomatic rapprochements in recent years, mostly involving Israel and various Arab countries which had hitherto been unfavourably disposed towards it. A normalising of relations between Iran and Saudi Arabia isn't quite that eyebrow-arching, but it is not nothing. Relations between Riyadh and Tehran were severed seven years ago after the Saudis executed a Shia cleric and protesters in Iran vented their displeasure on the fixtures and fittings of Saudi diplomatic missions. I'm joined with more on this by Holly Dagres, senior fellow at the Atlantic Council, editor of The Iranist. Um, Holly, first of all, is this a tremendous surprise to watchers of Saudi Arabia and or Iran? Um, Well, Andrew... It's interesting because this was actually, um, these talks were ongoing for some time actually in Baghdad. So they actually started in April, 2021. 
And um, they had been going on for some time. And the sixth round was actually supposed to happen last fall. But then the mass um, protests, anti-government protests kicked off after the murder of Masa Gina Amini in mid-September 2022. And rumor has it that the reason that the talks actually ceased wasn't just because of the anti-government protests, but because of an Iranian diaspora satellite channel by the name of Iran International that used to be based in London. Now, um, some Iranians, and particularly the Iranian government, believe it is Saudi-funded. Saudi and when the protests kicked off in mid-September, there was a lot of rolling coverage of the protests, and they blamed the satellite channel for the unrest in the country. And clearly, as you outlined there, a lot of work has gone in uh, to this rapprochement. But what is driving that? Why were both Riyadh and Tehran willing to put in the hours to restore relations? Well, these are two major regional players that have been at loggerheads, I would say, um, for years now, but particularly since the U.S. withdrawal from the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, or JCOA, in May 2018 under the Trump administration. That's when we really saw an escalation of tensions in the region. And it was during that time we saw the sabotage of oil tankers in the Persian Gulf, and we even saw that Saudi Aramco in, I believe, September 2019 be attacked. Um, and it was a lot of tensions in the region that pushed, um, I would say, countries like the United Arab Emirates to uh, sit down with Tehran and talk to um, reduce tensions in the region. And of course, since then, we've seen with the um, war in Yemen, um, missiles being fired over um, Saudi cities and whatnot. And so this this tension has been ongoing for some time. And I think it was just long overdue that these countries would finally sit down and broker um, uh, a situation that would resume talks of relations after seven years. But I think the, the real elephant in the room is that it was led by China. And I think that's what's really key here. Uh, I do want to come back to that point, but you, you mentioned Yemen, and obviously Iran and Saudi Arabia, by at least well, by one analysis, have been waging a, a large-scale proxy war across the Middle East for much of the last decade, not merely in Yemen, but also in Syria, Lebanon, and Iraq. Would it be being hilariously optimistic to suggest that all of those conflicts may de-escalate somewhat? I mean, one would hope, but I think that things are a lot more complicated than that. I mean, the Iranians will obviously say that we have nothing to do with Yemen. The Yemenis have their own agency, the Houthi rebels. But we know that's not the case. So even if they sit down and they've written this all on paper and they've decided to send ambassadors to each prospective capital, respective capital, it doesn't mean that things overnight are going to be dandy in the region. And I think it's naive to think otherwise. I think this is a long-term thing, but this is certainly a start that they're able to send ambassadors to Tehran and Riyadh and at least summon them and complain for starters. Uh, and to come back to that role that China played in this, what is China's interest in Saudi Arabia and Iran being, well, sort of friends again? Well, I mean, there's several things going on here. Um, first of all, China has been pushing these um, point plans, essentially, that were Chinese Chinese vision for regional security in the region. And so we've seen them talk about this for some time. We've seen um, Xi Jinping in the region um, make numerous visits. We actually just 
mid-February saw Iran's President Ibrahim Raisi go to Beijing on an invitation by China. And um, it's clear that China wants to play a bigger role in the region, and it's been doing so for some time. And this is particularly in the context that the U.S. has somewhat focused its attention eastward on China, on Russia. And I, I think they're seeing that there's a space there for them to have more influence in the region, and that's what they're doing right now. And they've certainly done that by bringing two regional players back to the table. Holly Dagres at the Atlantic Council, thank you. As always, you're listening to The Daily, and let's bring in our panel, uh, Monocle's Laura Kramer and Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Listeners of A Sensitive Disposition are advised that quite a lot of the rest of today's show is going to be consumed by discussion, not only of the Oscars, but of the Eurovision Song Contest. It's too late for me, but save yourselves. Um, the, the, the Oscars, which, as we have discussed at around this time in previous years, is that thing where lots of the world's most hilariously over-rewarded people all get together and we all watch while they tell each other how bloody marvellous they all are. Um, But this year, uh, Laura, I noticed that one of Earth's most currently admired people has not been invited. That's right. President Zelensky will be notably absent after making appear- well virtual appearances at the Grammys, at the Berlin Film Festival, at the Cannes Film Festival. He will not be making one of those now at the Oscars. It's actually the second year in a row, and there was a really big power agent who was really pushing for it. But the Oscars said no. One of the reasons that they're citing is that they feel that it's it, people... A lot of people care about the Ukrainian conflict because the Oscars feel like, oh, it's mostly white people where there are many conflicts that are happening around the world. And they've never really paid attention to that, that they say that that is one of the reasons. But we've never done the decent thing before. Why start now? I think I don't know. I think there's more to it than that. I think obviously the Oscars have had the hashtag Oscars so white controversies in the past. Mm -hmm. So I could maybe buy that. But the truth is, the Oscars are looking for ratings. Last year's show was the second worst in terms of ratings in the history of the Oscars. Now, nobody knew that the big slap was going to happen. Maybe had they known in advance, more people would have tuned in. If if I could be guaranteed a punch-up, I would absolutely watch the Oscars. (laughs) So, yeah. So they're looking, number one, they're looking for ratings. And also, a lot of these uh, film awards whether it's the Golden Globes, the Oscars, the Emmys, whatever. Many actors are put into a position now where they feel that they have to make some sort of stand because they're in a position of privilege. They have to look like they're doing something for a greater good. At the same time, audiences in America are really turned off by that. Mm. They don't like it. They feel it's becoming too political. So the Oscars are like, oh, <laughs> what do we do? I, I, I mean, it's, it, it, is, it is tough, but my, my own suggestion for solving it would be that there, there there should be a trap door on the stage roughly where people give the speeches accepting their nominations uh, and when in, when any actor starts pronouncing upon politics that's when somebody pulls the lever and 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 down they go i mean I, i'm not necessarily beholden to the idea of there being an actual shark tank they could they can they can, <laughs> they can land on something soft i'm a reasonable man but 
But I, I'm quite excited for this year's Oscars. I know I'm, every year I'm excited, you right? You are, in fairness, but, excited for no, every year's Oscars, but, Fernando. But one thing that I did last year, which for me was horrible, um, you know, especially if you work in the film industry, was that some of the categories, they, they pre-recorded and they show it quite uh, quickly on TV. I, I kind of think it's shameful because people say, oh, the Oscars are too long. But to be honest, the Oscar used to have good ratings and it was super long. I mean, But that's it, because there was nothing else on television and nobody had a, no one had a laptop. No, but you know, I think people actually enjoy the, the length of the Oscars. You just have to keep, make it entertaining, have a host. I think to have to, to have a host is important. Otherwise, it feels a bit kind of clunky and doesn't have kind of a rhythm. But is it not the case, though, Fernando? And I, I am not. I am not judging this predilection of yours at all. That you, you're just massively into award shows. You would watch the Oscars if it went on for fifteen hours. I would, but at the same time, I, I do <laughs> recognize when it's a bad award show uh, and, and sometimes the Oscars unfortunately they are they're bad sometimes but I remember in the past there's been a lot of entertaining ones and I am very hopeful and I don't know if Laura would agree with me as well I think the selection of films this year it's a very good mix of art house big blockbusters which might attract the audience I mean when you have Avatar and Top Gun together with Triangle of Sadness and Tower smaller films it's such a good mix this year I think. So you see this is where I can join in having literally seen one of those films which one? Uh, I saw Top Gun on the plane on the way to Australia uh, just before Christmas. If Tom Cruise heard you, he would, because, you know, his whole thing was watch it on the big screen, yes. right? In fact, Steven Spielberg, who's actually also up for Best Picture for The Fablemans, went up to him and said, you saved cinema's ass and all this stuff about I mean, it. I, I did think it was hugely enjoyable. It's a good film. Yeah. Great I mean, stunts. Fan fantastically daft, quite arch and self-knowing, though. Goes just this close to going full side-eye to camera uh, at a few moments. I No, hugely enjoyable. I, I don't I don't have a, an issue with Top Gun. I think this year's Oscars will be fun because a lot of people will also be tuning in, I do think, just to see, do they address the slap? Do they ignore it? Do they move past it? But also, it's going to be probably the proper Oscars like we have seen it in the past because even last year's show was still like the halfway pandemic Oscars so it'll be interesting to see what happens and I'm very excited for it. I mean, Fernando which particular nominees in whichever categories you like will you be cheering on most ardently? I think an interesting one would be Best Actress because I, I generally thought Kate Blanchett would win with Tar but now I'm changing my mind because there's two different but stories Kate here. Kate Blanchett is Australian for yes. now and therefore marvellous. But yes, she is marvellous indeed but that's the problem that she's too marvellous and perhaps it wouldn't be a surprise if she wins. Michelle Yeoh... Like, it sounds like one of those things <laughs> you say in a job interview when they ask you what your, what your faults are. But, if anything, I'm just too marvellous. But to be fair, Michelle Yeoh is also marvellous but uh, of course... As not Australian a, though. Not Australian but mm. it would be such an iconic to see Michelle Yeoh winning a Best Actress after so many years working in the film industry for a, such an interesting film, although it's not my favourite film, uh, Everything Everywhere All at Once. Right, mm -hmm. Laura? I, I always get confused with the title of the That's film. That's right. Uh, it it's a good film, but, you know, people liked it, right? People liked it, and now it's suddenly kind of bumped up in mm. the predictions for which film is going to get the top prize, which is obviously Best Picture, although is it going to be that? Is it going to be Maverick, indeed? Andrew's favorite film of all time now? <laughs> um, that's not my favorite film of all time. <laughs> my, 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 my favorite film of all time does have a lot of aeroplanes in it. And Which one? 
<laughs> and is in fact called Airplane. That's not. <laughs> it's not actually my favourite film of all time. Um, I'm not actually sure what it is. I believe we are deviating from the point here somewhat, which is to talk about not my favourite films, but, Laura, to bring us smoothly back on track here, what will prove the Academy's favourite films? When you are sitting up, I assume, at four o'clock in the morning wearing one of those, you know, those hats with the beer cans on either (laughs) side with the straws going straight in except with (laughs) coffee in it, um, what will you be hoping gets the gong? I would love for everything... Everywhere all at once to get it. I would also be very happy with Maverick, so I'm kind of torn between the two of them. Um, I do like the aspect that Maverick brought back so many people into the cinemas. So as long as it's not Avatar. I mean, like, sorry to Avatar fans. <laughs> sorry, I agree. But, <laughs> but it's just like James Cameron, he's already broken so many records. I just feel like give it to somebody else. Like, it's and, and F- Fernando, <laughs> what are the chances, do you think, of a, a punch-up at, at, at this one? <laughs> because because they if anyone is going to try anything on they're going to have to do better than last year's Stramash which seriously if we are judging it by any other standards than award ceremonies was was pretty lame I think you're going to be very sad with this but I think it's very unlikely Aww. because from what I understand they are actually very concerned and they want to make sure that this will not uh, happen again actually so can you, can you how cool would it be though like tables getting upended chairs being broken over people's heads it would be brilliant people would talk about nothing else for weeks something always happens so maybe not a punch up but something else you know something you know maybe they will get the best a picture wrong again like they did with La La Land that was quite funny that was quite that was quite yeah. that was quite interesting actually I, I mean honestly I'm, I'm, I'm wasted in this job I should be directing award ceremonies um, Laura I understand that you have a seamless link from the Oscars to Eurovision unless I misheard something earlier well, I do, but I'm going to have to go ahead and play a clip for you first. That's okay. You're going to have to be patient because I know you can't... Andrew's such a big Eurovision fan. He, he, he hides it. But the truth is, I went to a premiere this week. It was a premiere of John Wick Chapter 4. Are you a fan of the John Wick series of the franchise? Um, this is the first time I'm hearing of them. Wonderful. Okay, so it stars Keanu Reeves. Okay. <laughs> and You're making me laugh. Okay, so I went to the premiere of this film, and it was very rainy and very cold and horrific, but I got to chat to a few people, including one of them, who is Ian McShane, about basically blockbusters. This film, this franchise, started out as a small indie film, really, actually, and it's become huge. And I just basically asked him, where do these blockbuster films sit now in an area where films go to to streaming so much faster and quite frankly fewer people go to the cinema is this a new thing that every film has got to be a certain length and fill up the cinema so there's no longer like a you know the depth of but film's been dying in terms of films that are made for like 20-30 million Netflix has taken that place you know a lot of films so called grown up films or art films still get made but they're specifically, I mean, all the festivals take different things, you know, Sundance is more like indie, trendy, whatever, then you get Ber- serious films, Berlin, and then Cannes, but they're all about selling movies, and movies ain't going anywhere, there'll always be movies, you know. And so one of the other co-stars in the film is Rina Sawayama. She is a Monocle 24 artist, as you may well know. And people were uh, speculating that she was going to be the UK's Eurovision 
uh, ambassador, so to speak. Is that? <laughs> but she isn't. This is the seamless link. This is. She is not. And the thing is, let me tell you, there were people there who had asked her about it, who told me when they brought it up in the interviews, the mood shifted. It got very weird. So they didn't know. Is it because she's she's doing it and she can't say, or is it because she's not and it's awkward? Well, now we know that maybe it was the latter. <laughs> <laughs> um, who is who is it then? I did read this somewhere. It, the it, UK's. It was a good choice. It's uh, May Muller, and the song's called "I Wrote a Song," uh, and it was it was about cheating actually, which is a big trend in music today. So, uh, and, and you know, I respect what, che- cheating in what sense? The sporting, romantic. Exactly. So basically, she said that she's been cheated by her ex-boyfriend, and instead of hang doing- on, somebody's written a pop song about cheating and love going wrong. God, this changes everything. <laughs> no, but Andrew, people are being very direct about it. I mean, just look at Shakira. But you know, I, I generally think it's 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 becoming even more of a trend than what it used to be. So the song is not, despite the title, in fact about writing a song. No. Oh. No, it's about that, that's de- that's deceptive. It's about saying bad things about her ex-boyfriend. Um, is, is she going to win? I don't think she's going to win, but I think it's been a very valid uh, entry for the UK. The UK is taking super seriously. Lucas Sandrider with Spaceman, he was number two last year, mm-hmm. only behind the Ukrainian victory. So yeah, it's it, it's changing. I think the I think the UK is getting very involved with Eurovision. The country loves it. I knew, for example, to get the ticket, we're talking about how difficult it was because people in this country they love it. Well, well, indeed. I, I do have some follow-up questions about the ticket, Fernando, and it's more in the manner of a hypothetical. Would you be prepared if some absolutely obnoxious amount of money was offered to you to resell it? No. No? I, I, I mean, I don't... One oh, billion gosh. pounds, Fernando. <laughs> God. Maybe one billion I would, but actually I generally saw some tickets for £11,000 uh, for resale. <laughs> I mean, it would be such a moral decision. I wouldn't know what to do, actually, because it's so special to be there as well. I mean, a, a, eleven grand, i would be expecting to be allowed to get up and do a couple of numbers. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, that's the price for resale. I mean, it, it was, was sold. All the tickets were sold out in 25 minutes. Laura, would you pay 11,000 quid to go and watch Eurovision? Absolutely not, Andrew. <laughs> I would... <laughs> what would I you would, pay? Let's figure it out. Ten and a half. <laughs> Maybe. I would pay, I don't know, if I had the money for 11000 I'd probably go to the Oscars over Eurovision. <laughs> but you don't pay for that. Although, how seriously is the UK taking this? Can I just say, because a lot of people were worried that actually there might be rail works happening and people can't actually get to Liverpool, which would be the most British thing I could possibly imagine. Rail works and people can't go to Eurovision with the £11,000 tickets oh, that they God, bought. Oh, God, actually, I, I bought my train tickets. So hopefully that's not true. Um, but you know, I, I you know the, the UK they love complaining, but they are actually <laughs> they won so many times Eurovision. It's just because they don't like losing. That's the reality, you know. And they start start blaming Europe because of the vote. Not really. They just needed to send a decent song. People don't care where you're from See, as long as it's a decent song. I, I thought it was. A, I honestly always thought that the UK's long run of out was a bit more complicated than that. There was obviously the fact that all their entries sucked, um, but there was also the fact of, I think, Brexit, you saw a big tailing off in the UK's votes after that. But also, I think there became a genuine understanding, and this this was something I noticed just in travelling in Europe and talking to other people about it, especially in Eastern Europe and Scandinavia, where they do, as you know, take the whole thing incredibly seriously. And I don't think it dawned on them until the internet sort of connected the world with each other's sensibilities that British people, by and large, regarded Eurovision as an excuse to get a few friends round, get some 
some drinks in and have an agreeable evening laughing at foreigners. It's changing. I agree with you, Andrew, but it is changing because they, they are ch sending very polished artists, mm. I have to say, which I know you don't like. I know you like this kind of more outre side of Eurovision. But don't I worry. Do. I, I Don't worry. I, I, I chose two very outre songs because Excellent. we have almost all of them. Uh, I think we're just waiting for Portugal and Sweden. I should um, just warn our listeners <laughs> who are fleeing the room right now. We're not literally going to play all of them. <laughs> Not all of them. <laughs> and and I, wanna, I genuinely want to hear the opinion of both of you for the, those two tracks that we're going to play here. The first one is going to be from Austria. It's quite an exotic song, I have to say. It's by Teja and Salema with Who the Hell is Edgar? <laughs> <laughs> that, that is bloody awful, Fernando. Well, that but that there, makes Aqua sound like Leonard Cohen. But, but, but there's, a, there's a poetic side to it. No, because there isn't. Look at the lyrics. There is a ghost in my body and he is a lyricist. It is Edgar Allan Poe. So they're big fans of the writer. I, I'm um, I, I am sure the composers uh, of this work are deeply, deeply imbued in the works of Edgar Allan Poe. I'm sure they've ever read a single thing he ever wrote. And apparently, if you listen to the music, there's a critique of the music industry saying that uh, freelance musicians doesn't get enough income as well. Um, Sorry, I'm not laughing. <laughs> Sorry. The, 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 it's, it's is that sad. a reach? There's, there's a subtext in that song to the effect that the people who wrote and performed it are complaining they're not paid enough. Yes. I think they're they, wrong. They, they say, are wrong. They are by definition vastly, vastly overpaid. At some point they say 0 0.003 which is uh, apparently the royalties that Spotify pay yeah, the Sp artists. Spotify in this specific instance should have, I'd, I'd say Harvard. Um, <laughs> Laura, what, what, what did you think? Oh, you know, it brought me back to my days in Romania. It was, I mean, can I say, is Euro Trashy a bad word? I mean that lovingly. I, I so. love I, Euro Trash music. Like, I, I am Romanian. We love that stuff. I, I, I was actually, I have to say, getting slight flashbacks of Belgrade nightclub circa 1999. Exactly. Uh, are you prepared for the second one, though? Uh, Clearly not. It's uh, from Finland, and, and I'm sh it's a shame that Marcus is not here, because otherwise you'll be correcting my pronunciation here. Uh, but, you know, it's the Finnish, they are doing a different cha-cha-cha. Uh, this is a career... Is the song literally called cha-cha-cha? Because they're up all night working on that. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so, yes, cha-cha-cha by the artist Karija. Isn't that the Austrian entry played at the wrong speed? <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and, and this song, I think, has so many elements to it. There's a little bit of electro, metal, a little bit of hyperpop, too. Mm. And he does mention pina coladas. And, and apparently, and apparent the Finnish press, they're reporting that their interest for pina coladas have increased in Finland after the release of the song. What, so everybody <laughs> in Finland is now drinking pina coladas? Yes, basically, that's the story here. <sighs> okay, uh, Laura, what, what, what did you make of that one? It made me think of, like, a German... I don't know what <laughs> German of, club. I know, it's, German, I know it's from I Finland. I know it's from Finland, but Death you know it, that, yeah. it, it's it's that like stereotypical three a.m. German club with like leather and people getting whipped. 
Ooh. <laughs> I was just like, that's what it made me <laughs> for, think of. And for the second week running, Laura, you are lowering the tone <laughs> of the Friday Daily egregiously. <laughs> uh, Fernando, we have, I think, another 65 days until this is all over. So we will be discussing Eurovision again. But at this distance, seriously now, Ukraine are going to win, aren't they? Well, according to the book, he's yes, uh, but I, I don't think so. Maybe, maybe, really? it's be, yeah, I don't. I mean, they have a good entry this year, but I wouldn't say it's as impressive as the Kalush Orchestra. Uh, but give me a few weeks to decide my favorites, Andrew. But at the moment, this one, the Cha Cha Cha, I think is the second or third favorite at the moment. Uh, Laura, what do you think? Do you think we have in one of those two glimpses seen the winner of the 2023 Eurovision Song Contest? Oh, Andrew, I'm going to have to see the performances for that. There's no way. I mean, th- those are both such excellent songs. And I, <laughs> and I think they were just... Looking over at you, the pained look on your face, I thought, yes, this is Eurovision. Bring it on! Because the thing is, where Cha-Cha-Cha is concerned, Fernando, there's going to be a stupid dance, isn't there? There are dances. And and actually, we just heard a a little clip of it. But as I said, the song is very versatile. There's a time that it goes to hyper-pop. So it it does change. what, What was that we heard? So, Well, we heard the metal bit, I think. Okay. Uh, the hyper- <laughs> And do you know what's a hyper hyper pop? Uh, I would have assumed that was it. Oh, no, no, no. Hyper pop is kind of... Uh, it's even you... worse. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's... that's for you, for you, yeah. A, a great deal we have to look forward to. Um, let us now move along to exciting news for anybody who believes that 250,000 US dollars is a reasonable price for unfettered access to the Great Sphinx of Giza. Egypt is retailing citizenship and a passport in exchange for that size of bung to the state treasury or the purchase of state-owned property worth 300 large or meeting one of several other somewhat rickety-sounding conditions. Yes, it all sounds like some sort of pyramid scheme. <laughs> hey, I worked on I worked on that one for some time. Um, F- Fernando, are you tempted by this to become a an Egyptian citizen? Would you look good in a fez? Can I be really honest with you? Mm. I think it would be very chic if I would be Egyptian as well. I always had this fascination with Cairo in the 60s. So, I, I mean, I, I don't know much about the country. Sorry, I know the political situation is a very difficult country, actually. Uh, but... I wouldn't mind being Egyptian. I mean, 250,000? Maybe. Yeah. yeah. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, what, what's a week's wages, <laughs> exactly. right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I just paid 11,000 for my Eurovision ticket. Whatever. Uh, and, and Laura, you already are wearing a fez, as you, as yeah. you, as as you do most, as usual. Yeah. yeah. So, so are, you, are you tempted to go that step further and become Egyptian? I don't know. I was in Egypt for a bit. I, I have to say, if I judge countries by their wine... I wasn't a huge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that's 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 hardly fair on Egypt. I mean, uh, who, uh, who thinks of wine when they think of Egypt? Well, Andrew, the people who tried to get me to like it did, and they just kept plowing wine at me from Egypt, and I thought, oh my gosh. But I mean, the I mean, Red I'm Sea sure snorkeling it, I'm was nice. Sure, it's dreadful, but they don't really have the climate for it, do they? No, they don't, Andrew. But they try so hard. Okay. So no sale on Egypt at 250 grand. I I have done a bit of research uh, on this, though, and there are about a dozen or so other countries in the world which will flog you citizenship, uh, you know, certain terms and conditions attached. A hundred grand makes you a citizen of Antigua and Barbuda or Dominica or St. Lucia. 150 grand 
Granada or St. Kitts and Nevis. If you want to go a bit more boutique, 200 euro, 200,000 euros for Montenegro or North Macedonia, $750,000 for Jordan. Their wine is probably not much good either, quite similar climate to Egypt, or 738,000 euros for Malta. Is anybody tempted by any of those? I think I would stick with Egypt, actually, because of this image I have of glamour from the past. But I, I'd never been to Egypt, so maybe I should check it out before, right, Laura? Yeah, my, my, my only ever impression of Cairo was not glamorous. It was mostly like five hours spent in a traffic jam trying to get onto the highway to Alexandria for what remains, I think, probably the most terrifying drive I've ever been conducted on. <laughs> That's fair enough. <laughs> I mean, Laura, what do you think? $150,000 to be a citizen of St. Kitts and Nevis. I quite like the idea of traveling with a passport from St. Kitts and Nevis. See, I think that sounds chic, Fernando. Hmm. Not- if you have the money, here's my, my thing. If you have the money to splurge on this citizenship... Why do you need the citizenship? Because surely you can just go there all the time. Well, as people have pointed out when they have criticised these sorts of rackets, specifically when it comes to Malta, uh, one of the reasons you might want, might want a Maltese passport is if you are a ropey crook from a non-EU jurisdiction who quite fancies having EU citizenship so you have somewhere safe to move all your dubiously acquired, acquired assets should you need to. In that case, I choose Malta. <laughs> Malta is very nice. <laughs> and I know, I, of course, I give my throwaway comment. I mean, I do, fi- I do have this image of Cairo being very chic. But yes, I understand that actually there is a critique here. I mean, if you're, if you're wealthy, basically you can get a citizenship mm-hmm. anywhere you want. Or, to be honest, I mean, some countries, they might not give you citizenship, but they might make your life very comfortable. Let's look here at the UK as well. I mean, they might not sell properly the, the citizenship, but if you have enough money, you're going to have a good life here and you're going to have a lot of kind of tax benefits as well. Um, but yeah, there's this critique here. But yeah, I, I'm still up for Egyptian uh, citizenship. Laura, what do you reckon Romania could rack up for one of their citizenships? That does get you into the EU, of course, but that is, that is your, the citizenship of your birth? That's right. I asked my dad this question, actually, mm-hmm. and he came back with a very serious answer, and I will do an impression of him in this voice note. He said, a plow and goat. I was like, Dad, Dad, <laughs> dad only you can make that joke because you're Romanian. Like, come on, plow and goat. And he, so there you go. <laughs> uh, cheap. Uh, and, and Fernando, if we if we transpose a plow and goat into Brazilian currency, well, I'm sorry, I have to defend Brazil. I think our passport would be very expensive. And you know why? Because we have a very ethnically diverse population. I think it's quite a powerful, actually, passport to have. I, I spoke here as well that it's actually quite easy to counterfeit a Brazilian uh, passport as well. So you can, you know can even fake it if you want. Why is it easy to counterfeit a Brazilian passport? Because everybody can look Brazilian, honestly to God, it's true. Um, so, so basically, nobody would doubt. Oh, Andrew, yeah, of course, Brazilian, Laura, Brazilian. Well, I, I would have, I would have hoped and assumed, Fernando, they had slightly more stringent security measures attached to Brazilian passports <laughs> than just cutting out a picture and pasting it in. <laughs> no, but, but there, there is something to it. Trust me, I, I, I should do a proper investigation. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, please, I wish to make it clear that Monocle Twenty Four, as a corporate entity, does not encourage the forging of passports <laughs> from Brazil or literally 
any other jurisdiction. Uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco and Laura Kramer, thank you both. Uh, and a shameless cross-media plug at this point for Monocle 24's new travel show, The Concierge, which you can listen to just as soon as you are done listening to this from wherever superior podcasts are downloaded. But finally, on today's show, we return to the Oscars, which are coming up this weekend, which I think we entirely failed to mention through that whole discussion. Uh, Among those hoping for a win is the Irish screen industry which has films nominated in Best Picture Best International Feature Film and Live Action Short Film totalling 14 nominations across this year's awards Irish actors account for a quarter of all acting nominees so why have there been so many Oscar worthy performances coming from such a small country Sebastian Stevenson goes to the two Dublin acting schools that Paul Mescal and Barry Keoghan spent some time with before they hit the big screen. This weekend, Brendan Gleeson, Colin Farrell, Kerry Condon and Barry Keoghan from the Banshees of Inishirin and Paul Meskel from Aftersun are all up for Oscars in acting. Two of those names, Keoghan and Meskel, are associated to two acting academies that both came around at the same time in the early 2010s. I'm at the Bow Street Screen Acting Academy in Dublin City Centre, Smithfield. The artistic director of Bow Street, Shimmy Marcus, speaks about the creation of the factory in 2010. So originally we started as the factory set up in Docklands. It was an existing recording and rehearsal studio. And then it was taken over by three top Irish directors, John Carney, Kirsten Sheridan and Lance Daly. And the idea was to put a co-op together where directors could pitch ideas to each other, to producers, and then just workshop scenes with upcoming actors. Our experience at the time was that most actors in the country, like internationally, their training was from traditional drama schools, so they were given theatre performances in front of camera, which never looks good. So we started developing techniques and workshops to do working with camera exercises, things like that. And out of that grew the Actor Studio, which was set up by a bunch of the students who were hanging around at the time. And the, I think the main leader of that gang was Jack Rayner. Also there at the time was Brian Gleeson, Gavin Dre. The, the youngest one there would have been Barry Keoghan, who came in one day, announced himself, and uh, we were never going to get rid of Barry. It was beyond charming. But unfortunately, just as things were getting really going, our lease ran out and the the landlord didn't want to renew it. So that was the end of the factory. And then a few of us uh, decided we had something very special in this course that we wanted to pursue. So we found this new building up in Smithfield, opposite the Jemison Distillery, on a street called Bow Street. And uh, we rebranded as Bow Street. One of those also involved in setting up the factory was casting director Maureen Hughes. Maureen has been casting for talent in Ireland on stage, screen and other mediums since the 1980s. She says she introduced the writer of The Banshees of Inishirin, Martin McDonough, to Brendan Gleeson for short film Six Shooter, which won an Oscar in 2004. Here she tells us about the first time she was introduced at the factory to Barry Keoghan. Barry came into the factory and came up the steps to my office saying, is Maureen News here? And I was there and I remember thinking, who is this 12-year-old child? And he said, Peter Coonan sent me down to see if you'd give me a start. And so I kind of looked at him and there was already something really haunting about him. I remember thinking, who is this kid? He's kind of extraordinary. And so 
I said to him, he had no money, nobody had money in those days. So I said, why don't you come into the actor's studio? We were running a kind of an ad hoc actor's studio in the evening. And so he did. And I started working with him and I was actually working with himself and Brian Gleeson. And there was no doubt in my mind that we were looking at somebody who was kind of extraordinary. I didn't understand why. All I knew about Barry Keoghan is that no matter what scene he was in with whoever he was acting opposite, the camera always favoured him. It was kind of extraordinary. Some strange alchemy he has. So what is the alchemy that comes from Irish actors? Well, I think it's in the DNA for the Irish actor to perform, to tell stories. We are a nation of storytellers in first position. And that doesn't go back 100 years. That goes back thousands of years. It goes back to the Shanachie. It goes back to the like of Peg Sayers and Dingle. You know, that tradition has been handed on and over to us over hundreds and hundreds of years. So, of course, it makes complete sense to me that we would be very naturally excellent storytellers on film and television all we needed was to understand the technique and so we were great theatre actors we continue to have some of the most excellent theatre actors but film took us a minute to just understand the different muscle it requires to act on film my theory always with acting on film is think it and the camera will find it while the factory would morph and move over to Bow Street In 2011, on the other side of the Grand Canal, in the Docklands, the creation of a purpose-built acting academy called The Lear would take its first students in. The Lear was where Paul Meskell would spend three years as a student before stepping out into the acting world. Compared to independent upstart Bow Street, The Lear is a part of Trinity College Dublin and receives state support. Lachlan Deegan is the artistic director of The Lear and says that the well of talent that is already here is now finally getting the support it needs. I think what's important to acknowledge when we consider our recent success in this year's Oscars is that it's not slash in the pan or it's not an overnight success. It's actually the result of sustained investment in the industry. It's the result of the political class eventually acknowledging that we have a particular unique selling point in this regard. We have a national asset that is our artists and our storytellers that with proper investment and with considered investment across the whole ecology can really, really deliver for us as a nation. I I don't think this year is uh, unique. I think it is uh, the result of an increased capacity within film production in particular, which is increasingly international in its outlook and its perspective, which is going to continue to deliver success for Irish production companies, for Irish films, for Irish actors, for Irish artists across the performing arts. Assuming the government keeps faith with the investment that they have made and are making at the moment. For Monocle in Dublin, I'm Sebastian Stevenson. That was Sebastian Stevenson in Dublin, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. The show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamantu and our sound engineer was Adam Heaton with editing assistance from Tams and Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening. <laughs>